we really need to find ways to remain connected to be globally minded and education is one way and one of the most impactful ways um, to do that the world has never been changing more rapidly dislocating the ways we work learn and live on the learning future podcast we discuss the knowledge skills and dispositions we all need for our learning future exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today we are speaking with Rajika Bandari. Rajika is a scholar and practitioner in international higher education, and her work has spanned the nonprofit, private, and higher education sectors across 22 countries. She's a widely published author and speaker on issues of international education, the global competition for talent, skilled immigrants, and educational and cultural diplomacy. She's the founder of Rajika Bandari Advisors and offers strategic guidance to nonprofits, multilateral organizations, and higher education institutions, and also serves as a senior advisor to the President's Alliance on Higher Education and Immigration in the United States. She's the author of the forthcoming book, America Calling, a foreign student in a country of possibility. Rajika, thank you for making the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much, Luca. I'm delighted to be here. There's so many interesting elements in your bio that I'm really excited to hear from you about. Let's start with a simple question, which is, what's something you've learned recently? So I think that this past year has really, I mean, it's almost a cliche to say that it's been a year of... Uh, <laughs> unlearning and relearning, yes. um, I think both at the macro level for organizations and entities and countries. But I also think it's been a period of uh, learning for individuals. And for me personally, it's been, um, the learning has really been about a great deal of soul searching about my career and um, and work and a period of being very vulnerable and mm. um, confronting almost existentialist questions mm -hmm. about, um, for example, what does um, prestige and professional stature mean to me? Um, where and when does an individual derive their sense of validation? Is it external or is it more um, internal? I've spent a lot of time thinking about leadership, and I'll share in a minute um, sort of why, but um, those are some really big questions I've been asking that, that is leadership defined only by the traditional models of leadership where you lead by authority and supervise mm. a big team and budgets, or can one still be a leader when you're leading by influence and with your ideas in much the way that people like, like you are doing and that I have been do, trying to do for the past um, couple of years um, by way of background. And the reason I mentioned these questions as sort mm. of a period of what I've learned is um, my own career and my identity as a professional has been through a pretty significant transition over the past couple of years. And then there was, of course, COVID. Yeah. So in terms of sort of what a very concrete area in which I've been learning is really this past uh, year, as you mentioned, I launched my advisory services of really wearing that hat of an entrepreneur, of being, um, learning how to run a business, <laughs> learning how to still deliver value to um, to the organizations and stakeholders I, I, I care about, 
continuing to build my um, my brand and learning how to do all of this without being within the setting of uh, a large organization or a large entity and then i'll add to that 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 part of this is also a real learning for me this past year you you mentioned my book has really been about just learning about the crazy crazy cycle of mainstream publishing and publicity <laughs> and marketing sure. um most of my background has been in more scholarly and research work where yeah. i think we scholars and researchers are more modest about how we share our work mm. but not so in mainstream publishing so i am learning um i will share this about this whole world of bookstagrammers on instagram <laughs> i'm learning about right. people who spend getting my book into the hands of people and young women who are, that's all they're doing they're spending their time uh reading and reviewing books and posting reviews so so th- that's been a huge insight for me this year on wow. what does it take to get a book into the hands of uh of the common reader it sounds really fascinating and i mean i, th- I think as you pick up the kind of pc on unlearning and relearning uh and also identity you know mm-hmm. owning what it is that each of us contribute to the world <laughs> or are attempting to in any case uh you know it's it's a really powerful way to think about human growth development and actually the path that we all walk you know in school beyond it as professionals as scholars uh or as entrepreneurs and so take us into the big idea that you have been exploring uh for the past number of years and this idea because really those those themes actually weave into each of our journeys in terms of what are the skills that we have how do we contribute to those what's the different environments uh you know cross cultural environments etc that migration um impacts which uh, of course is enormous and especially now with restrictions um yeah. that we have seen for the last 12 months it's kind of really brought that to light in in lots of countries like australia um as well as the us so yeah, what's the big idea that you've kind of been trying to navigate and understand and then you know communicate so i would say that the big um idea has really been about and that has sort of really come to a head over the past couple of years is that how can we continue to um engage globally through education and how do we keep the pathways of education and global engagement open Mm. and i i it's come to a real head again, as i said for a couple of reasons um here in the us certainly over the past 4 or 5 years and as someone who sort of studies the ebbs and flows of mm-hmm. uh, of student migration uh, not just to the us but globally as well and you know this is something very critical for australia as well as you mentioned being um, a key destination for the world's um, globally mobile students and with international students and then especially among those who go on to become immigrants contributing so much to australian society it's it's much the same um in the us with the us in fact still retaining its role as being the number one destination so that's something i've been studying for the past 15 to 16 years but in just the past couple of years it's become a much more urgent question because um we've seen um regressive policies regressive immigration policies over the past 4 or 5 years we've seen um sort of a 
turning inwards mm. and um, um, increasing nationalistic sentiment in, in countries like the US, the UK, as, as, um, as well as others. And it's and then came COVID. So it's created a perfect storm for U.S. Uh, colleges and universities, I think, for U.S. Uh, society. Um, and the big question is that how do we continue to have those pathways open, to keep the doors open, to keep globe, to keep minds open, because this type of migration is not just about the acquisition of degrees, but it is really about people-to-people -people exchanges. It's about an exchange of ideas and values um, for, for countries like the US and Australia. Their education and what they ha have to offer the world through their degrees, and for the U.S., I call it a "Made in America" credential, right. has really been, along with you know, if we look at popular literature or we look at music, mm. um, we look at pop music. It's really been one of the most important forms of export and a way of really influencing the minds and hearts of people around the world, and that's what's at risk right now. And then. On top of that, with COVID, it's really presented this issue um, of how do you keep up those relationships through education when um, students around the world have been forced to, to pause and question that do we indeed want to go to the US? Mm. And on top of that, uh, there have been the very real impacts of COVID that, that in a very practical sense have made it actually difficult for students to travel. So those are some of the issues that I've, of course, been immersed in for years, but um, I think have really become quite critical over the past year or so. Mm. Give us a sense of, of how impactful, you know, study abroad or these kinds of migration patterns have been you know what are the numbers globally because i imagine they're quite large when we think about the number you know we we're talking earlier about the number of phds being undertaken in the united states and and my, well my read on that is this 50 about 50 percent perhaps more uh foreign students that have that have come to do so so that's an enormous value add to the united states around innovation and intellectual capital um and of course you know there's these, these aren't just a small program. This is significant life choices and your own story, you know, as a um, moving from India to the United States, I'm sure, you know, mirrors that, um, you know, now having a PhD and having this incredible kind of educational pedigree. So what do we know about how much movement has been taking place around the world? Uh, and, you know, from which parts of the world, you know, are we seeing really significant um, numbers of students uh, go to places like the US? Yeah, so I'm going to wear my researcher and data hat now, but thank you for asking that because I love to talk numbers. Um, so one estimate that we have globally that we've been in the field been using for a while is that about 5 million students are globally mobile. And these are some numbers that are tracked by the OECD. And according to some projections, they expect it to rise to about 8 million in the next few years. But keep wow. in mind, this was before COVID. Mm. So it's almost like we have to talk about pre-COVID and post-COVID, but we don't know those 
quite know those global numbers yet. But in any event, those numbers are huge. And then, and that number is actually an undercount. And I will not, I will not go into data definitions here and bore your, your listening audience, but let's just say that that 5 million number is a huge undercount. So there are students who are going abroad to study and are not being counted in that statistic. So it's actually a much larger phenomenon for various reasons. Now, when we look at it at the US, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the numbers are huge. So over 1 million, approximately 1.1 million international students uh, study in the US from over 200 countries. And it still remains uh, by far the top destination um, compared to other Anglophone, um, Anglophone countries. Ah. And the impact is absolutely huge if we look at that pipeline of going from being a student to becoming an immigrant in the US. And, and that's exactly the pathway that I describe and, and detail and lay out for readers in my book as well. And the reason I talk about this pathway is that when you look at numbers, the reality is that about 80% of international students who come to the US are going to stay on and immigrate. And I suspect wow. that this is also a reality for Australia. So those who are staying on, um, uh, that number is significant. So when they first come in as students, um, through their living expenses in the US, their tuition, their fees, the everyday things that students spend on when they live in another country, they're contributing $45 billion to the US economy. And for the US, it's the sixth largest service export, which means that the US is selling more higher education degrees to the rest of the world than either uh, pharmaceuticals or cars. It's the sixth largest export. Wow. And I would, I would wager that the average American does not know this very important fact. Now, when we go further down that pipeline, the contributions continue. So uh, the hard data is that if you look at innovators and founders in the US, I think the estimate is that 25% of all founders of Fortune 500 companies or, or sort of billion dollar companies that employ thousands of Americans first came to the US as international students. Mm -hmm. And if we move away from the numbers and sort of put a voice and face to who these people are, I could rattle off several who've been in the news recently. So whether you look at Nubar Afian, one of the co-founders of Moderna that created um, wow. one of the first vaccines, he, as well as the CEO of his company, both came to the US as international students. Mm. If we look at political leaders, um, Kamala Harris's parents came to the US as international students. Her mother from India, very much like me, of course, several decades before, and her father from Jamaica. And then if you look at Barack Obama, um, his father came as a foreign student from Kenya. So mm. all of this is to say that, you know, regardless of whether you look at science and technology, you look at innovation, you look at academia, you look at, you know, startups in Silicon Valley, um, wherever you turn, 
you see that a lot of leadership and contributions are coming uh, from people. And we forgot, forgot Nobel laureates. Uh, let's not forget the Nobel laureates. <laughs> a lot of the Nobel laureates actually first came oh, to the... Oh, they're easy to forget. Um, you know, yeah, what have yeah, they done? Yeah. You know? <laughs> exactly. So a lot of the yeah. American Nobel laureates um, have come to the country, had yeah. come for, to the country first as international students. So I will, I will rest my case there with yeah, both great. the numbers well, and the stories. Well made. Uh, I mean, I, I'd add two... Two more, you know, Satya Nadella, the CEO yes. of Microsoft, who was yes. born and educated in India and then, of course, moved to the United States mm-hmm. for study, um, yes. to study computer science. And then um, yeah. Elon Musk, actually a South African, that, you Absolutely. know, grew up in Pretoria and then moved to Canada at 17. And yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, I think there's a very strong case to be made for the, the benefits of migration, which is curious because I'd love us to, to kind of go after the cultural aspect here. Because there is this, I mean, increasing protectionism, particularly in the, the most recent political chapter of the United States, uh, about this, this kind of concept that, and we have it here as well in Australia, which is this idea that, you know, migration doesn't add value. I mean, it's clearly an incorrect idea and it's grounded in, in kind of roots of racism as well. But why is it the case that, you know, why is it that some people don't, just don't embrace the idea of migration. There seem to be pockets of, you know, communities that say, uh, you know, that, that feel threatened by migration and, and diversity and somehow it's impacting their sense of identity. Um, so what's the, because economically, it's a very, very clear case for both the countries that benefit from, um, from both migration, but also from, you know, the educational uh, activity of foreign students. Where, what have you discovered on this cultural journey um, around, you know, the cultural implications of new, new communities that are joining and increasing the diversity, um, which of course is a good thing uh, in many ways, I would say in all ways, but, <laughs> you know, how do we get over some of the barriers or resistance that exists to, to people's view that, you know, the vernacular we've heard here in Australia is, you know, we're being invaded by you know, a wave of migration. And it just seems to be history repeating itself. This is a, it is a huge issue. And I won't say it doesn't exist because to be quite honest, when we look at the arc of history and the arrival of whether it's international students or immigrants in the US, and and, and I do go into some of this history in my book as well, We see sort of what I what I characterize as uh, the fear of the the other, quote unquote, the other, really re-emerging periodically. Mm. So, for example, what we've seen this year play out in the U.S. with all of the hate crimes against Asian Americans is in um, many ways a repeat of what was going on with the Chinese, the, the Chinese ban or the Asian ban. It was known by different names in the 1800s in, um, in the U.S., where the U.S. pretty much banned what they termed as, as the yellow peril or the term used for East Asians uh, to, to characterize and stereotype East Asians. So, so we see those waves over and over again. How do we change that? I think there are two parts to that. I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult to change, but I will say that there are two parts to that. One is evidence, 
and more data and getting that out in front of the common person. Mm. And that was the motivation, honestly, for me to to write my book, because um, I've done this research and written on these issues for years, but that's preaching to the choir. Yeah. Everybody within my circle could rattle off to you any of the statistics that I shared with you because they know that. And yet, as someone who had been through that journey myself as an international student and then became an immigrant and then became the outsider looking in as the expert studying those issues, it was galling to me how little the common person, and by the common person, I mean, you know, neighbors around me, friends, other people, um, the average American did not know about what some of these pathways are or what the struggles are. And, you know, that leads to all of these stereotypes about, oh, they're coming here to take college seats away from us. Yeah. And then when they become immigrants, oh, now they're taking jobs away from us. Yeah. But the evidence is actually showing exactly the opposite, that they are, in fact, creating more college seats, creating more opportunities for American students, etc. So I think one piece is sort of really... Um, finding ways to share that evidence more broadly. Mm. The other is that Americans need to be more global. So if we look at the reverse side of the picture, it's really troubling that only 10% of American undergraduates will ever go abroad during their undergraduate degree. They're 90% who are never going abroad Mm. Now, that can be due to a combination of reasons. It can be cost. Studying abroad is extremely expensive. But I think it also comes out of this idea where America believes that it's fine for the world to learn about America and it ought to learn about America, but Americans don't necessarily need to exert a lot of effort to learn about the rest of the world. Mm. So I think this is a real issue that begins early on in the education system. And, you know, you've been a teacher and educator um, all your life, so you know this. But exposing children to um, global ideas through their curriculum, through the pedagogy, through their teaching, through teaching. Mm. So it begins very early on. Um, so I think that's the piece that really needs work on how do we also get, in this case, Americans, it could be Australians, it could be any other country. How do we get them to, to develop more global citizenship and to mm. develop those global mindsets? And that can happen in a number of different ways. I am not saying that it can only happen through an in-person study abroad experience because that is still a fairly elite phenomenon, mm. but it can happen through globalizing curriculum or what in, in our field of international education, what we refer to as internationalizing the campus, right. where you're bringing those international concepts into the classroom instead of the student necessarily having to leave home. And I'll just sort of end with pointing out kind of this, 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 this flow that's so important that for those 90% who are not leaving home, it is that much more important to have an international student from a country like Syria or Nigeria or Iran sitting next to them in their class. Otherwise, how are they going to learn about the rest of the world? Yeah. Wow, Rajika, that's really fascinating. I mean, you're not surprised, I'm sure, to hear that I'm an enormous advocate for global citizenship. And, and I mean, it just has to be the case if we're going to solve some of the wicked challenges that we face as a planetary species. Uh, you know, global diplomacy, even yeah. commerce and trade, uh, you know, increasing the equity that needs to exist around the world if we're going to have a 
kind of thriving world in every sense, including environmentally as well as socially and economically. Yeah, so the idea of bringing that experience, I mean, my own journey, not surprisingly, was me leaving Australia many times to have immersive experiences, linguistically and culturally. Uh, and of course, what I've discovered on that journey is just so much about myself and who I choose to be. And I think that's just a powerful piece around identity. We really don't know who we are until we can contrast and compare and understand. And, you know, um, that's why I just think they, these types of experiences and skills are so critical. And even, and I really like this idea of internationalizing where you are, like making it, you know, you can be in a rural school in, uh, you know, in the outback of Australia somewhere, but how do you really kind of bring the world into the classroom, into the school environment? Uh, as much as that's possible to do so. Um, because there's also this piece, and I think it comes back to our conversation around the kind of the resistance that we see in communities as well, to some, in some, off sometimes or often to migration in particular parts of the world. Uh, and this idea of the contact hypothesis, you know, the idea that it's when it's hard, it's hard to maintain a particular worldview that might be racist if your neighbor from Iran, say, is lovely and has a family, you know, it's, you know, really humanize the other as opposed to stereotyping and creating a distance. And I, I think that's really why, you know, I'm such an advocate for social and emotional learning also, because this is the idea of using empathy and perspective taking. And I think, you know, the work that you're doing is so interesting because it's showing like how you can do that in the most tangible and authentic way possible which is to yeah. embrace the idea of migration and to realize that it adds value <laughs> always um, and makes just the world more interesting. I mean, diversity in all its forms, you know, it's the reason yeah. we want to keep biodiversity and linguistic diversity and cultural diversity. I mean, it's going to places like, I know that you're outside New York, going to New York and just seeing the incredible melting pot that that city has become over, you know, a number of centuries. So yeah. take us into... Yeah, no, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just wanted to respond to something so important that you mentioned when you talked about your own um, travels outside of your home country and what that meant for your learning. And, you know, one of the one of the important points I also make in the book is exactly that, that it's not just about the stereotypes or racism or preconceived notions in the country that you go to, which is sort of what we just talked about over the past couple of minutes, but when you leave home, it forces you to challenge your own stereotypes, your own racist assumptions. Mm. And I think that with what happened last year with the, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the US, it was a real wake up call for international students here in not only questioning what is our racial identity and where do we sit in the larger landscape within the US and its, its racial dynamics, but also what are those ideas and narrow-minded ideas that we ourselves are carrying with us that where, where we too are guilty of perpetuating some of these divisions, although mm. perhaps in a more subtle way. So I, I just wanted to pick up on that point because that was a great point that you made. It, I think it's, it's also an, an interesting, and we have this from here in Australia with um, a, a quite a large number of students that come from East Asia and from South Asia, so Indian, um, Chinese, uh, Indonesian, Philippines. I mean, these are quite large countries contributing students to Australian universities. 
And there is this, I think, a really significant challenge, which is to say, how welcome do they feel in Australia? And I imagine this is something that colleges in the United States, universities here in Australia, anywhere where it's such an enormous kind of economic benefit, um, but also, as we've been talking about, cultural benefit as well. Um, how do you ensure that these are welcoming places? You know, that you know, when you're an international student, you feel safe enough, you know, challenged enough, clearly, because you're you know, on a cultural interface and outside the comfort zone, but also safe enough and welcomed enough. Um, you know, I wonder what, what, what would you say, you know, if you had to advise, and you might actually do this for it, advise a college, you know, about make, you know, enabling the environment to be more international, more welcoming to international students, because it's a really important part of, um, well, just the economics of universities now, but also, of course, the enriching element of being a, a, a higher education institution. That's a really good question. And I will say in defense of US colleges and universities that they have tried incredibly hard and really put their best foot forward with potential current and potential international students over the past four or five years. Mm. And it's been an incredibly difficult time for them, especially with um, the very regressive policies that were coming down from the top with the previous administration. And the challenge that we have in the US is that unlike um, countries like the UK or Australia, where there's there's national level policy around and policy and strategy around internationalization and international students, etc., there isn't in the US. So there isn't um, I mean, we have pockets of it distributed across uh, various agencies, but there isn't a national level um, strategy around um, really promoting and um, and um, promoting the U.S. as a destination for international education. So it almost falls to the institutions mm. to be doing so. And so it's it's often said in our field here that every institution almost needs to have its own foreign policy. So all of this is to say that institutions have tried really hard, um, but even so, it's it's been very difficult. And I think some of the things that they can um, do better is to, again, really think about how, when students come in, how do you connect them to a sense of how do you create that sense that they're not just visitors in an alien land for a mm. defined period of time, right. um, but that they, for whatever that period of time is, and for many, it can be very long. I mean, if you're a doctoral student, you've already committed to about six or seven years of being, um, being um, in the U.S. and on a campus. And then for those who become immigrants, that period of time is even longer. Mm. But then how do you integrate them into the larger fabric of, um, of American life? And one of the areas that I find, to my surprise, incredibly um, undertapped and underutilized is leveraging diaspora communities. So if you look at the average American campus, so many, and for reasons that we talked about earlier, so many of the faculty, particularly in the sciences yeah. and engineering, are yeah. foreign born. Yeah. Many of them came to the US as international students. 
Um, if you move beyond the campus in the immediate community, there are large immigrant groups. I mean, you look at a place like New York City, where you know it's a melting pot for a reason. We are surrounded by dias diasporic communities from all over the world, but it's also true for places like Minneapolis and Minnesota and places all over the U.S. So, what are campuses doing to engage those communities? In the with the international students who are arriving from their from their home country and how to connect some of those dots and really make students feel like they're part of a larger whole. And I think that with what went down both last year with the Black Lives Matter movement and then this year with how vulnerable um, Asian international students have been feeling. Um, I think a lot of that can be ameliorated by again helping them feel that they're part of a larger fabric and larger mm -hmm. larger groups and not just sort of these uh, lone entities who mm -hmm. will get invited to an occasional Thanksgiving dinner right. or uh, will put on a cultural program <laughs> about their yeah, country yeah. and, and yeah. Uh, to you know increase mm -hmm. the learning of their of their uh, you know of their campuses. So I think mm -hmm. going beyond that for sure. Yeah, weaving kind of that diversity into the fabric of student life, really. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that again, being just enriching the experience for everybody in that learning ecosystem. Uh, Rajika, it's been lovely to speak with you. And this is such an interesting time to have this conversation because there has just been so many migration <laughs> routes that have been just disrupted over the last 18 months. Yeah. Um, and we're still here down under, really considering how, you know, how do we enable international students to return in a way that doesn't compromise our attempts at zero locally communicating you know, um, transmitted COVID. So yeah, it's a really, it's a really pressing issue for like a lot of university councils right now and, and vice chancellors. So it'd be interesting to see how that progresses. Uh, so in the meantime, thank you so much for, for sharing some of your ideas. I'd love you to leave us with some, you know, some words of wisdom, some messages, you know, from the work that you've been doing and, and the idea of America calling and, um, you know, the book that you've, that's forthcoming in September. What, what is it that you want to leave us with? So I would, I would say that my main um, message, especially during this time of, um, you know, uh, being, uh, being in a time where the world has become so polarized and so insular, we really need to find ways to remain connected, to be globally minded, and um, education is one way and one of the most impactful ways um, to do that. And um, as I shared earlier, it's not just about obtaining an academic credential. In fact, I would say that's the least of the benefits. It's an important one, but, mm. but it, it, it quickly fades to the background when you realize how critical um, education is to really those those the people to people exchanges and um, exchanging ideas and values um, and um, really having that that form of cultural and uh, diplomacy and sort of soft power if you will which is a which is a very important component to more formal diplomacy between um, between countries and um, Again, if we look historically, 
it's been quite striking to see that even at some of the worst moments on history in history when when doors have closed and i'm thinking about the first world war mm. i'm thinking about recently in you know events in in us history um and other points in history as long as we've been able to keep that channel of education opened uh, kept it open excuse me it's um it's really helped the world remain a more a more a more peaceful and sane place mm. well yeah that's what we need more than ever before i think is um you know more peace a kind of unified understanding that we're all in this together uh and so rajika thank you so much uh for sharing with us today for the learning future podcast and all the best with the book Thank you so much Luca it's uh, been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into the learningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.